Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello. This is actually a show that we did last year. And the main reason it's important to tell you that is when we did it last year, the Yard Goats had not come home to their stadium yet. Their stadium was not yet completed. So you may hear some references to that. But mainly, we wanted to tell you this other story, the story of teams that are not like the Yard Goats and the ways that they're different. We had a lot of time and a lot of fun out in the field uh, talking to players and managers think you're really going to enjoy this story of a kind of baseball team you don't hear that much about. If and when Hartford ever gets its minor league baseball team going, that baseball team will be essentially an outgrowth of the Colorado Rockies. Colorado Rockies make all kinds of decisions about what happens here in Hartford because that's the way most of the minor leagues work. But today we're going to talk about a different kind of minor league baseball. And I'm going to actually even assign you some supplementary viewing if you haven't seen the documentary The Battered Bastards of Baseball which is about one of the early versions of these independent teams, about the Portland Mavericks, which were owned by Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell. And it's just a terrific story about how this kind of thing has worked in the past when it was a more novel idea. But the idea spread. There are a lot of um, independent baseball teams now. They don't belong to minor league systems. They are put together in a very different way. So we're going to tell you about them today. We're also going to visit with one of those kinds of franchises a little bit later in the show. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to tell you about an unusual experience experiment at one of these independent teams, which, by the way, are the kinds of places where you can experiment. That was an experiment in which stat heads or data heads were allowed to take over an independent team. But we're going to begin with just sort of the basic outline of what a team like this is and how it's different from other kinds of minor league teams. And to help us do that, we have Katya Sengel, a freelance writer and the author of Bluegrass Baseball, A Year in the Minor League Life. Katya looked at four different minor league teams, two class A, one class AAA, and one unaffiliated team called the Florence Freedom. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. One thing that we can maybe say is that the other three teams that you looked at were affiliated with the Houston Astros, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Tampa Bay Rays, respectively. And when they found out that you were also going to write about the Florence Freedom, even they got edgy. Why did they get edgy? Yeah. And actually, I was thinking as you were talking, I remembered with the title of my book, A Year in a Minor League Life, I even hesitated a little on that because the one team unaffiliated is not officially the minors. And so whether I could use that or not, I wasn't sure if the other teams would get a little annoyed with that, but I went ahead and did it. But they are very, the minor league teams are very strong about saying, you know, we're affiliated, we're connected, the independent, they're, they look down on them. That's the lowest of the low. They're not connected to anything. They're professional baseball. They are playing baseball, but that's where you go when the minors are below the majors and then below that is unaffiliated. So you've been cut from everything released and this is your last chance or it's just you've got some guys who were in the minors who go down and then you've got some who never even made it to the minors who are trying to get that chance to go up into affiliated ball. So in the minors, you've got everyone's trying for the majors and independent, you're just trying for the minors. You're trying for anything. So it's just this 
last hope, last step. We should say that it's a melange of career paths, too. I mean, we've certainly seen uh, pretty well acclaimed major leaguers who didn't believe, didn't agree with the major leagues that they were at the end of their useful life, passed through some of the independent teams uh, around here. And, and the aforementioned documentary includes Jim Bouton, who had been a star for the Yankees, blew out his arm and was trying to come back as a knuckleballer. There's all kinds of people who wind up in these independent teams. But uh, one of the differences that you found, Katya, is that they really are run locally. In other words, every decision that can be made is made right there by the team itself. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, well, it's really interesting, too, because when you're an affiliated ball, you're kind of everything's about that major league team. So even who's on the rosters at each different level, it's not what's best for the AAA team or the single A team. It's what's best for the major league team. So you'll call up a lot of times guys in AAA, right, will get called up towards the end of their season. So for their team, it would be better for them to stay down. But it's all about the major league team. Well, an unaffiliated, that's the only team. That, that's it. So you're not having to answer. It's, not, it's less of a big business. You're not having to answer to the major league team or anything. So they have pretty much much more say on their players, who, who's playing, how they manage the team, um, and how they all fit together as a team. And as far as being more involved with the community, you've still got – in some of the low majors teams, Stay with host families in their homes, but in independent ball, that's all there is. So they're living with the the local families who are cooking for them and kind of taking care of them a bit. After games, the players will be just interacting with fans, drinking beer with them. There are a lot more restrictions in affiliated ball where you have to dress a certain way on road trips. You can't chew tobacco, things like that. Different teams, it varies different. But um, in unaffiliated, it's a lot more loose and a lot more laid back. I guess maybe more old-fashioned in some ways. You might say less restrictions and just... Uh, more interaction, I think, would be the big thing. And as you were saying, yes, there's some very good players. And a lot of times the difference between independent, even though they're kind of looked down on, a lot of times it's just an injury or just luck or there were too many if you're a catcher and, you know, that year there were a lot of good catchers. It's, it's, it's not necessarily these guys aren't good players. They are. They just, a lot of times it is injuries or timing or whatever that that's the difference in this. You know, I, I want to come back to this uh, idea of the host families. I don't know exactly how true that is across the entire spectrum of independent baseball. But the Florence Freedom, the team that you covered, that was very, very true. And one of the things that these host families were told was, don't get too attached to these players. These players who are living with you, I mean, maybe they're they're not around that much because of road trips and because of just the obligations to be playing baseball. But to the extent that they are around, somebody's living in your house, you would get kind of attached to them. So what was the reasoning? Why, Why did the owner say, don't get attached to these people. Because when they're released or traded, the person who replaces them is going to stay with that same host family. And they do. Uh, the host families do get attached to the guys, even though they're not supposed to. It's just impossible not to. But they, they've got a player there, and they're really close to him. They end up going to one woman, I remember, she said she went to church with the guy. and um, But then he gets traded or he gets released mid-season. That night, after he's cleared out his stuff, there's another player coming in there, and that's the person who is responsible. I mean, not personally, but they're they're replacing the person you're close with. So if you're too close with them, you might have trouble being nice to the new person who's kind of taken their spot. Yeah. Uh, one woman she ends up going to, because the guys afterwards, they, 
get married, they get jobs and things. She's gone to some of their weddings, gone to <laughs> their graduations from police academies, all sorts of things. So they stay in touch. It can be pretty brutal, though. I think you described two women getting out of church and one of them gets a text message, you know, walking out of church saying, nope, the guys who have been staying at your house, they're gone now. You'll never see, you're not going to see them. They really don't give you warning at all. And the other guys who got traded while they were on a road trip and then didn't have any warning, yeah, they, they really don't, which I guess is, to be fair, in even I think the minor leagues, it's it's very similar. Often you don't get much warning at all when something like that happens. Right. Yeah. You should talk about those two. The two guys who were from Michigan, and they were actually in Florence to play the the Florence Freedom, the team that you covered, and and they they get the news that they're traded. Now, the, one of the differences here is you know not to make independent baseball seem incredibly threadbare and impoverished, but you know these guys are depending on this tiny amount of travel money just to deal with stuff. You know, I mean, it, it is a little bit, you know, day to day in terms of how much money you have. And suddenly they weren't eligible for a travel stipend because they were with this home team that wasn't their home team when they departed Michigan. So uh, explain some of the realities there. Yeah, exactly. So when you're on the road, I think it was with the Florence Freedom at the time I was doing it, they got $20 a day meal money. Yeah. And I think if you're a coach, it was 25 which, you know, that's covering sometimes after the game, a team gives you food. That could be covering your breakfast, your lunch. It doesn't go very far. But what happened is the, these two guys, they were playing Florence in Kentucky. They're from Michigan, so they were on their road trip. So that's a pretty long drive. And they were not given road money because they were told then when they arrived in Florence that they had been traded to Florence, but no one had kind of given them a heads up on this. So they had no money to get a meal. They also made them ride the bus back with their former teammates, Michigan, so they could then drive back to Florence. It was just no consideration kind of for these guys. You know, you talk to a bunch of the players for the Florence Freedom, and these are guys who have just sort of made a decision that they're not ready to give up on the baseball dream. Mm-hmm. No matter where they've been so far, I mean, some some of them have been a little higher than this. Some of them have never been higher than this. But whatever the gritty realities of this uh, might be, and, and what, whatever the, the downside of playing for an independent team might be, right? They're, they just haven't been able to give up that notion that they're going to be professional ball players. Yeah, and I mean, I guess even it's not well-paying. You know, they all have to have jobs in the off-season. They're just struggling to get by. They've got, like, no days off and maybe 24 days in a row playing. But this is a lot of everyone, many people's dream to play a sport professionally, to get paid to do what you love doing. So even though, yeah, it's not it's not the majors, it's not even the minors, it's still professional baseball being paid to do what you want. Some of them are like, yeah, you know, it's, it's an escape from reality of going to a regular nine-to-five job or something. Why not chase the dream a little longer? So for a lot of them, even though the conditions aren't ideal or anything, it's still it's a chance to do something they really want to do, and most are still pretty young, so why not? When it really starts getting difficult is when they get in a relationship and maybe want to have start a family or something because you just can't support that, and it's hard to maintain a relationship on that kind of schedule and that little money as well. So that that usually seems to be kind of when it really, and that was one of the guys I wrote about who's getting married, and that's really when you kind of start thinking about moving on. I did like the guy whose wife said, he's going to be the one who has to pull the plug on this. He's the one who's going to make the decision because I don't want to be the person 10 years from now who nagged him into giving up uh, professional baseball before he yeah, was ready. I that's think, a smart I woman. Think, 
because yeah, she was the reason, and he gave it up before it was like she she said out of his system. Then I think they none of them ever want to wonder what could have been if I just tried a little harder or, or stayed a little longer. So they'll often wait until you know it's pretty clear either age or injury or or they're just tired of it before they'll completely give up. But it's hard because, it, like I said, these are good baseball players, and it may have just been an injury. It may just have been timing that they, they aren't up there. And there's just still hope. Even their scouts, they're looking. They're, there's always hope. And to give up on that too soon is very hard. And how do you know exactly when's too soon? It, it's a hard choice, I think. All right. We're going to have to stop there. If you want to learn more about this, including how it is possible to have an entire crate of bobblehead dolls based on you stuck on a dock in Hong Kong and never coming to be used by your many fans. You're going to have to read Bluegrass Baseball, A Year in the Minor League Life by Katya Sengel, and you will enjoy reading it for the bobblehead story and others as well. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you're going to hear us in New Britain talking to some players who are with the local independent team there. Hi, this is me again in 2017. You're listening to a 2016 show, which we're sharing with you because we really liked it. We think it says some really fundamental things about the people who have dreams of playing baseball as a pro, maybe at the major league level, maybe dreams that they can't entirely realize. So when you hear a pitcher on this show named named Matt Iannuzzo, I want you to know that as of now, he's out of baseball, uh, which is kind of sad considering how much it meant to him. But I think it's also very much part of the reality of the kind of baseball uh, we're talking about on this show. So anyway, here's we're going to go back now to the 2016 broadcast. I'm here with Stan Clyburn. He is the manager of the New Britain Bees. We're here in New Britain Stadium on a beautiful day. In fact, if you if you wanted to spend your life in professional baseball, you'd be dreaming about a day like this one. It's about 84 degrees and dry, and you can hear the crack of the bat in the background maybe as they're taking batting practice. So Stan Clyburn, they say you win some, you lose some. You've won 1,600 games now as a manager? 1,600 was, uh, in fact, it actually happened here at New Britain Stadium last uh, Thursday night. Big special moment for me. and. Uh, you know, when you when you look at that 1,600 wins, you look at all the great people that it's helped me out, the coaches, the great players I've had over the years. And a lot of them was here in New Britain. I think over 400 here in New Britain with Michael Kadir and, and Justin Morneau and David Ortiz. And but it's all about the players. It's all about what they did for me. And now we're we're the bees here, and we got you know Garners and and we got Maddoxes and you know it's a combination of everything. But I appreciate you guys acknowledging that. Thank you. Well, we, you've managed all over the place at all kinds of levels in professional baseball. You managed here, as you're alluding to, when this was a Twins affiliate. Now it's an independent team, and we're doing a whole show about independent baseball. So tell us the difference. What's it, what are the differences for you as a manager working in, in an independent team? Well, it's not really any difference. I mean, minor league baseball is minor league baseball. We're in the Gulf Coast League. 
all the way to the Pacific Coast League, the International League, all the great leagues, Eastern League, Southern League, all of them. This is the Atlantic League. All these kids are, you know, are trying to get their dream again to go back to the major leagues. A lot of the guys, I mean, we've got six or seven guys who got major league experience. So, in the whole league, I look at it last year, there was 80 of the 200 guys in the league had major league experience in the Atlantic League. So, this is a league that people really don't notice is is a development league. It is. I still treat it as a development league. I still treat it like I'm in the minor leagues developing players. So if I can get them, you know, if I can get them to reach their max and reach their uh, ability of what they can do, then they'll get to their dream again. That's being back to affiliated ball with a major league organization where it's double A AA or triple A. I know we've lost five already to, to play baseball, all our starters. So that's, that's what it's all about, getting the kids where they want to be. Do you have more freedom? I would assume you have more freedom as a manager in a situation like this. You don't have a front office in some other city calling the shots to you. Well, you don't. You know, and I look back, uh, I, I'll give you a prime example, 2001, the Eastern League Championship here. You know, Justin Morneau was called up to us and, and out of rookie ball to double-A that year. And, you know, my opening day lineup was Tommy Peterman playing first base, who was hitting 20 home runs and drove in 100 and hitting 300 for us. And Morneau was out in the lineup. And uh, my boss from Minnesota called me up and said, Stan, where's Morneau hitting today? I said, he's not in the lineup, Jim. He's... He's on the bench. You're going to pinch hit late in the game. He said, no, Mr. Morneau would be in the lineup. So that's what you're dealing with, you know, and, and that good. Justin Morneau turned out good. We all know that. He was in the lineup that night. But here, you know, I signed the players. You know, it's all my name's on all these guys. Uh, my stamp's on all these guys. My reputation's on all these guys. And I believe in them, and they believe in me. And that's why they're having success they're having. We still got a chance. We got a month left, a lot of baseball left. We're only six games out with uh, – Hey, 30 to go, so we're looking forward to it. That's why we're out here working extra today and trying to get the guys to get get to their level. You know, winning baseball games is icing on the cake, but developing these kids, what they want to do, that's, that, that's what you're here to do, and that's why I'm here. So you, you picked these guys, and, and so you picked them, obviously, for their physical skills, what you thought they could do on the field. I assume you have to make kind of a character assessment of them, too. Is there a particular thing you're looking for, particularly in terms of the, maybe the stick to it may take? to play independent ball, maybe they get their eyes on some other prize. Well, you're looking at character. You know, you look at character, you look at uh, professionalism, on and off the field. You look at guys that, uh, you know, want to come here and play the game. Their backs are against the wall. They've been released by major league organizations for whatever reason, and I don't care. You know, I talk to their agents, I talk to their scouts, I talk to the people that believe in them, their parents. You know, that's where you go. You know, 45 years in the game, you realize what the kids can do. You try to share the knowledge and what you can teach them and hope they, they buy into the program. If they do, they're going to have success. And that's what I see here. I, I see a lot of guys doing well, and that's good to see. So you've been doing this for 43 years now in I professional think baseball? About, uh, I think it's going to my 43rd year. Yes, it is. And so is it still fun? Is this fun for you? Are you having a good time today? No, anytime I put the uniform on, it's fun. You know, I signed as a 17-year-old kid. Out of Jackson, Mississippi, I was a fifth-round draft pick by the California Angels. and In fact, I was on my senior trip over in Dallas, Texas, playing golf. And I had to pick up the Dallas Morning News and saw that was a, you know, they had the top five rounds in the draft that year, the Major League Baseball draft. And uh, I look up, and lo and behold, I'm, I'm the 106th pick in the nation in the fifth round. And that, that kind of made my golf round pretty good. So I hurried back home to Jackson, Mississippi and, and signed my contract uh, two days later. Yeah. Signed professional baseball, been in it ever since, and, and loved every day of it. 
What do you say to these players to keep them focused on where they are right now? I mean, some part of their brains, they're only human. Some part of their brains is thinking, got to get into affiliated ball somehow. That's where the, the big prize is. But you want them to be very focused day to day on being a New Britain B. What do you say to them? Well, you know, New Britain Bees is where you're at. I mean, you're in the moment. You're, that's where you put the uniform on. That's who you're playing for. Uh, there's a lot of scouts out there looking at you. You know, with the social media the way it is these days and everything's under a microscope. You know, these guys are under a microscope. Their backs are against the wall and they got to prove, hey, I got to get my way out of here. I got to find some way to impress somebody to get me out of here. Well, my connections, you know, hopefully they're trying to impress me as a manager because all the connections I know, I talk to people and I talk to scouts and I talk to agents. And I talk to peers that uh, they are guys that I believe in in baseball that I respect. And if a guy can play for me and, and come out and do the day in and day out what it takes, you know, I'm going I'm to throw his name out there. And, and that's what they got to believe in. They got to believe that I'm promoting them and, and uh, in the same token, go out and play for the New Britain Bees and do their best and hopefully get out of here one day and, and show that they can, hey, go back to the Major League affiliate and go back to the Major Leagues where a lot of them have been. Or go back to Double A and Triple A. So the sky's the limit. Their backs are against the wall. Hey, let's get off the wall and let's show what we can do. Get the Bridgeport Bluefish coming in here. Uh, is this a big rivalry? No doubt. Yeah. I mean, this is a big series. I mean, we're six games out with uh, 28 games to play. And we got Bridgeport three. We got Long Island three. We got Somerset 10. You know, all the guys in our division. I mean, the division is wide open. It's stacked up right now. So we got a lot to play for. And that's what you look for. And, you know, that's what you look for in late, late August. Uh, late September when it goes. I, I tell everybody, you know, I've been spoiled over the years, you know, championships 14 times, uh, I think playoffs 28 out of the 43 years. And, you know, last two years, Southern Maryland last year, we went all the way to October 9th. Uh, the year before, we, we won it in Lancaster, uh, October the 9th we left. And there's only two leagues that play in October and around this baseball, and that's the major leagues and the Atlantic League. Mm. So if you're playing in October, it's pretty nice. That is pretty nice. Stan Clyburn, a good look tonight. This is a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday series, right? Right. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and a uh, big, big week for us. So if you're fun. listening to the show right now on a Wednesday and you're getting the whole romance of independent baseball, Atlantic League baseball, come out to New Britain Stadium tonight or Thursday night and watch these two rivals go at it, the Bridgeport Bluefish and the New Britain Bees. Stan Clyburn, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. We're here in the visiting dugout now at New Britain Stadium. The Bridgeport Bluefish have arrived, and pitcher Matt Ionazzo is here. He's been on our show before. We've never got a chance to see him here in a baseball stadium. So this is uh, a good old-fashioned minor league rivalry, right? You guys uh, are in-state rivals. Is there, in fact, a strong rivalry between the Bluefish and, and the Bees? Um, you know, this is a new team in the league, so you know we're just still trying to get used to uh, the new f the facilities here. And I wouldn't say a rivalry is there yet. Uh, we're in the same side of the division, so you know I'm sure something will kind of form. And as you know, we're we're trying to make the playoffs here, so I expect this to be a pretty heated series. What's it What's it like for you? One of the this whole show is about independent league baseball. So what's yeah. independent league baseball like for you? What do you What do you see as first of all? as the joys of independent league baseball. Yeah, um, it's totally different uh, than affiliated minor league baseball. And I, and, and I don't say that in a sense of, of the actual game, but, um, you know, there's there's none of the politics that come with, with affiliated baseball, meaning that, you know, the higher-ups are deciding lineups or, or anything like that or innings pitched or starting pitchers. Here, you, you, you play well, you play. 
you know, you don't play well, maybe you don't play as much. Um, and that's a major positive for almost every player that comes here straight from affiliated baseball. They're not used to something like that. So, you know, that's the biggest thing that I can say is, is, is different. Um, also, you know, you get to experience the game almost like it was in college or high school, um, meaning that every game is played to win, not just to develop guys, which is, you know, it's a lot of fun that way. I was going to say, I'm assuming that means it's more fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, you kind of lose that competitive nature a little bit in affiliated baseball because winnings at some points feel secondary. It might not actually be secondary, but it feels it the way that maybe some moves are made. And here, you know, every single move is made to win baseball games. Does it create a different set of bonds in the clubhouse among the team? I mean, I assume in affiliated baseball, you got to kind of keep an eye on yourself and when you're going to get called up and what the organization thinks about you. I assume with here, it really is, once again, a bunch of guys trying to win a baseball game. You know what? Yeah, you're right. Um, in affiliated baseball, nobody will admit it, but in, re in the reality, you're competing against the people on your own team. You're not really competing against the other team out there. You know, you are for statistics and, and whatnot, but in order to get a better job for next season or for that season to get called up, you need to do better than the people that are you know, in your own clubhouse. So for some people, it's very hard to create relationships. Um, fortunately, I'm not one of those people I've been able to create friendships and relationships everywhere I've been, but here, um, those friendships and relationships seem to form a little easier because we're all, we're all in this thing together. We really are. You know, Every time I talk to somebody in baseball these days, I ask them about sort of metrics, you know? I mean, these days, it's like they're, everybody's looking for the 98-mile-an-hour fastball. That's not you. And in a way, I'm also wondering whether independent baseball is a place where a guy who pitches the way you do with control, spotting, stuff like that, you maybe have a, a longer life because there isn't the radar gun on you every single second. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely am a believer in saver metrics. I think that they show the game above um, statistics such as ERA and wins that sometimes you can't really control, but the spin rate on your pitches and you know and, and other things like that are, are things that you definitely can control. Uh, now, as far as I'm concerned, the way I pitch, they are a big help to me. You know, I don't show that 98, 99 mile hour fastball, but at the same time, you know, I've been able to get out throughout my career, and that's why I've been able to go five plus years without being drafted. So, you know, the it's definitely a big aspect for my for my game, yeah. Yeah. So just to make clear what you just said, this is your fifth professional season. Yes. You weren't drafted, but you've made a career or a five-year career so far right. in professional baseball, kind of going from starter to reliever to your reliever right now, right? Yeah, yeah. So so I started my career with the Cubs organization as a reliever. Uh, being an undrafted guy, starting positions, they, this, this is not going to happen. Uh, the high-drafted guys with the big fastballs are going to start. So then when I got released from there, I came here, and I was out of the pen, and I was doing really well, so they made me a starter. Uh, I've got 40-some starts over the last couple of years, uh, and then this year, due to an injury, I was forced to come out of the bullpen now. Uh, my, I hurt my back a little bit, so um, I'm only able to go two, three innings. So they said, you know what, let's just go out of the bullpen. What's hard about independent league baseball? The most difficult part is definitely staying positive through not necessarily seeing the benefits of your work. So, for example, there's times in my career where I've had a, you know, a, a one or two ERA and I was still here. And there's times where I had a six or seven ERA and I'm still here. So it's hard to kind of look through that and still see, you know what, there is still a chance of getting picked up and getting back to, and going to the big leagues or something like that. Staying positive is, is 
I'd say is the number one hardest thing for, for all of us out there um, through the thick and thin of everything. You know, today it's a beautiful day, right? Oh yeah, it's this is gorgeous. This is a gorgeous day, and you're it's in New a professional summer day. Yeah. You're in a professional baseball stadium. I can assume it feels pretty good today, maybe to be hey, a professional pitcher. You know what? I've always said that you get paid to play baseball. I mean, come on, like I got to sleep. I got to sleep until whatever time I wanted to today. I get to get up and, <laughs> and and play baseball against a really good team and with some really good guys. So you know, I I can never complain about anything that that my life has brought to me, especially on the baseball field. Matt and also always great to talk to you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So what happens when one of these loosey-goosey indie teams turns its entire operation over to two stat heads, the kind of guys that Jonah Hill played in Moneyball? Find out in the next segment. I don't care if I never get back as long as I get to root, root for my team because when they win, we're going to yell scream. Take, take me out to the ball game. Producing today's show and playing second base from New Haven, Connecticut, number 44, Jonathan McPants. Starting today, a technical producer and batting cleanup from Hartford, Connecticut, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ozzy Conseco. Special thanks to Chris Knobloch of the New Britain Bees. And now. Back to Colin. So when uh, Roy Blunt Jr. was a sports writer like decades and decades and decades ago at the end of Willie Mays's career, he went up to Willie Mays. He got one chance to talk to Willie Mays. And he, he said something to him along the lines of, you know, Willie, did you know that you've hit more extra base hits with a two-strike count than anybody in the history of baseball? And Willie, without even looking at him, said, man, I don't keep track of that bleep. And what Roy felt very de- deflated. Well, that now there's since then a, a generation of people who really do keep track of that bleep. And at a much more granular level, people who arrived on the scene first, maybe in the shape of a guy named Bill James, who put out a thing called Sabermetics. You know, maybe there really is a way to look at whether or not a sacrifice bunt is a good idea. It's been expanded. There's uh, been more and more information available, more machines to measure things that were never measured before. You saw some of this in the movie or the book uh, Moneyball. But we're going to talk about an experiment that took it to yet another level. What if so-called stat heads, what if they had a chance really to make almost all of the major decisions about a team? In order to do that, they'd probably have to be in one of these independent baseball leagues that we've been talking about so far on the show today. And that's exactly what happened. Ben Lindbergh is with us, staff writer at The Ringer, co-host of the Baseball Perspectives podcast, Effectively Wild, with Sam Miller, with whom he is also the co-author of the book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment, Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And, and yes, you're right. Not only could we tell you how many extra base hits you have with two strikes now, we could tell you how hard you hit each of those balls. We could tell you how hard the pitches that you hit were thrown, how many times they spun on the way to the plate. So there's an incredible wealth of information available now. Yeah, and it's interestingly seeped out to all kinds of places. I mean, even watching baseball games where, you know, maybe the the analyst is like a former major leaguer like Steve Lyons or something, he'll suddenly mention how many times this particular batter has hit an outside pitch or something. And I'm thinking, that's the kind of thing <laughs> right. Steve Lyons would not have known a few years ago, but, but they do know now. So let's talk about this experiment. It's really more than an experiment. An experiment is done in a lab where most of the effects of the experiment stay put in the lab. 
This was more than that. You guys were really basically allowed to make all the decisions about a minor league team. Now, tell us about this particular franchise. Sure. And yes, we we wished it was an experiment sometimes because it, it got messy at moments. But this idea was that Sam and I, who had been editors of this website called Baseball Prospectus, which is sort of a breeding ground for analysts of the game who have gone on to work for teams in many cases, we wanted to try to take over a team, try to put our theoretical ideas into practice, see what worked, see what didn't work. And so we managed to work out this arrangement with a team called the Sonoma Stompers, who are a member of the Pacific Association, which is a, a lower-level independent league team. So this was a, a little team in Sonoma, California, had just been around for a couple of years, and they knew of our work, and they were interested in working with us because teams at that level just don't have much time, much effort, much money to devote to actual baseball stuff. They have to figure out where the players are going to live and how they're going to pay them and are the concession stands stocked. So they were happy to have us come in and sort of take over the baseball side of the operation and also hopefully get some publicity in the process. Those of you who have seen the documentary Battered Bastards of Baseball have maybe a sense of what it was like in the early stages of, of an independent team. And you just listened to us talk to some people who are playing independent baseball in the Atlantic League, which is several rungs up the ladder from where Ben is talking about, where the Sonoma Stompers are. So one of the things that you did, because this isn't you know, a Colorado Rockies minor league team where the Colorado Rockies are stocking it with all kinds of players that they're trying to develop. I mean, you basically had to put together a team where none existed, right? Right. Yes. We wanted to take over an independent league team because we basically got a blank slate and we could do more or less what we wanted. And as we found in practice, that wasn't always the case, but we had to start build a baseball team basically from scratch. We we brought back a few guys from the previous year's team who had performed well. But after that, we had to find a baseball team somewhere. And Sam and I knew a lot of major leaguers, knew a lot of minor leaguers. We didn't know a lot of independent league players or potential independent league players. And we didn't have the connections that teams at that level generally have. That's how these teams get stocked often. It's players know players that they've played with before or the manager has played with people before he can call someone up and say i have a roster spot for you come out and play for us we didn't have that network of contacts and so what we did have was contacts in the sabermetric analytical community and also our own statistical knowledge and background so we tried to use that to build our baseball team and the best data set available to us was actually from college baseball so we were looking for college players who had recently graduated and who had performed at a high level in college, but hadn't been drafted for whatever reason. They were too small, they'd had an injury at the wrong time, they didn't throw hard enough, there was some strike against them that made all the major league teams pass them over in the draft, no other pro team take a chance on them. But we did some work with their stats, we tried to adjust for the quality of competition, the ballpark they played in, all the factors we could, and we came up with this list of guys who had performed really well, and we just took the chance, basically, that if they could play this well in college, they could play pretty well in the Pacific Association, too. So this gets to one of the really mysterious questions in baseball. Are you any good? And and it's not any, no matter how many stats you have, it's not that easy a question to answer. And people often outperform their old stats. You 
can probably already tell because I mentioned Steve Lyons that I'm a Red Sox fan. They have a catcher this year named Sandy Leone who just is, you know, I mean, he was really kind of behind a whole bunch of other catchers on their depth charts. You know, his OPS last time I looked was up, still up over 1,000, which is kind of mir- a miraculous baseball offensive stat. He's just sort of suddenly a million times better than he's really supposed to be. And it raises questions about how you evaluate the baseball equivalent of horseflesh and whether, and you're in a uniquely good position to answer this, whether somebody who, who kind of wasn't in the pipeline, isn't being nursed along by the Colorado Rockies or the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Philadelphia Phillies or anybody else, you know, who just fell short in the ways that you talked about, how big a difference there is between that person and a person who's maybe kind of hanging around double A right now, hoping to get called up to triple A. I mean, did did you find that there were just gems, you know, gemstones that just nobody really understood how good they were? I would say to some extent we did. And, and our goal wasn't necessarily to find future major leaguers who had been passed over unfairly. We we hoped that would happen. That would have been the, the greatest outcome of this project we could hope for. But we didn't expect that. What we wanted was guys who could perform at this low level of pro baseball. And, you know, maybe teams were smart to pass them over. Maybe they had no <laughs> chance of getting the majors. And thus, maybe there's no reason to spend a roster spot on them. But for us, we hoped there would be because we cared only about what they could do in that one summer for us. Of course, we hope for the best for them in the future. But we really were interested in what they could do today, whereas major league scouts are interested in what you can do five years down the road. Now, I will say that some of the players we signed sight unseen from this spreadsheet not only performed well in the Pacific Association, but our method has since been vindicated twice because two of the players we picked up in this method have now been signed by major league organizations. So a player named Santos Saldivar, who was a very short listed at 5'10", but definitely not 5'10", right-handed starting pitcher who had had great numbers in college, great strikeout stats. We couldn't believe he was available, but he was a small guy. He didn't fit the profile that scouts are looking for. He came out to our team in the middle of the season and was dominant down the stretch, one of the best pitchers in the league. And the Milwaukee Brewers signed him this spring in part because of the information that we were able to collect and provide about these players that wouldn't have been available in the independent leagues otherwise. And just earlier this week, Another guy we signed also in the middle of the season, Dylan Stoops, a left-handed starter, was signed by the Padres. So there are two guys who essentially were retired. You know, their baseball careers were over. They were figuring out what to do next. Santos was going to pursue being an accountant. Maybe he still will someday. But for now, that's on hold. And these guys are still chasing this dream that they had all but given up on. So whatever else we accomplished or failed to accomplish, that's something that makes us extremely happy. Just to go back to the point you made at the beginning of that answer, this is something worth dwelling upon for a moment as we talk about these independent league baseball teams. Because, you know, let's say that instead in your city, a major league affiliated minor league team has located in your city and somebody in the town the city spent $60 million on a stadium so you can all go watch these players play. The reality is that the Colorado Rockies are calling the shots about their double team. There might be a player who stays out on the field for a lot more games and on a lot more nights, even though he's not playing all that well, because the Rockies believe something about him, you know, that you know, you're just going to have to stay with him. I mean, they've, they're paying the salaries of these guys. They're paying the manager. They're paying even the trainers are paid by, by the major league team. Whereas you guys are trying to get an immediate result. So if you're looking at a guy who hits 
40 home runs in a season, but he strikes out a lot. Well, if you're a major league team, you're thinking, well, if he's striking out a lot at this level, he's really going to strike out a lot in the major leagues. He's probably not worth a chance. But for you guys, if he hits 40 home runs and his hits generally with some power, he can win you some games this season, and that's all that matters, right? Right, yeah. We were interested in flawed players as long as we thought they could contribute right away. I think Billy Bean maybe described them as players with warts in Moneyball, or maybe it was Michael Lewis. But that was kind of the concept we were going for. And and it's true, you know, even though we were able to sign some talented players, it became clear to us that the sooner you can get into affiliated ball, which means you're in a major league organization at some level, the better chance you have, you know, because when you're in the independent leagues, even if you have the talent, you are not getting the coaching, you're not getting the instruction, you're maybe not getting the nutrition. So you're falling behind everyone who is in affiliated ball, even if you have the talent. So we just wanted to help these guys get seen. And, and that's really the case both in the indie leagues and also in the affiliated minor leagues. Winning is secondary. Everyone wants to win. Sam and I certainly wanted to win. But you have to worry about development. You have to worry about what's going to get these guys the best chance to get to the next level. So that was really the, the primary concern. And at times those goals were in conflict because we wanted our players to do well individually, but when they did well individually, then other teams noticed and came calling and in some cases poached those players from us. So that was both a, a success and a disappointment that, you know, when a player would perform well, often we would lose him. We're talking to Ben Lindbergh. He's the co-author of the book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, about two stat heads who took over a baseball team. So in Moneyball, since we're using that as a point of reference, Jonah Hill doesn't go sit in the dugout and begin making sort of mid-game decisions. But this is an opportunity that you guys had, and th this is one that really is kind of unprecedented, that you would be in a position to say, you know what? Statistically, a sacrifice bunt really doesn't make sense in this situation. Or, and this is something that's driven me crazy for years, no, it really doesn't make sense not to use our best relief pitcher right here in the sixth inning with one out and the bases loaded. This is when we need a ground ball or two strikeouts. We'll worry about what's going on in the ninth inning later. Statistically, we should use that person right now. So you got to start to do these things. How did that all work out? I mean, was it just an incredibly magic run where everybody said, wow, we should have been listening to the stat heads all along? <laughs> yeah, not exactly. And it was frustrating at times that it wasn't that way, although I think it probably led to a better book in the long run. <laughs> but that was really key to the project for us. It was great to be able to sign these players and sort of, you know, play fantasy baseball with real players. That was that was a, an experience that we hadn't had before. But we really wanted to get in the trenches, get the firsthand view. And so Sam and I were in the clubhouse every day before the game. We were traveling with the team. We were in the dugout, at least one of us. You know, one of us was organizing our scouting operation, which was another whole hurdle that we had to clear because we wanted to accumulate as much information as we could in order to do the analysis. But we were apprehensive, of course, about, you know, coming out from behind our keyboards and our computers and getting right into the dugout with the players. You know, we were worried about sort of your your standard high school nerds versus jocks kind of conflicts coming up. And, and at times stuff like that happened, but we were surprised really by how receptive the players were to our presence. We we had to justify why we were there. You know, it wasn't enough to say, well, the, the GM or the owner says we can be here, so we're here. Okay, but we had to prove that we were contributing something. You know, we weren't actually in uniform, but if we're going to be hanging around the team all the time, we have to be part of the team in some real way. And so when we were able to provide information, that really helped because at this level of independent ball, 
you don't get to see footage of your own performance or of an opposing pitcher's performance. You don't get a scouting report on the guy you're facing that day. And we were able to do that because of the information we collected, the scouting network we set up, the stats we had available. And so I think the players really took to that when they saw that we could give them a heads up about what was coming. And of course, you know, different guys want different levels of information. Some people don't want to be overloaded, don't want to be thinking about a bunch of stats when they go up to the batter's box. But I think on the whole, the players really appreciated that. And we found that they all really liked watching themselves hit at the very least. So we were able to justify in our our presence in a way that didn't come down directly to, oh, well, we're writing a book, so we're allowed to be here. So everybody who's even casually interested in this kind of thing, the kind of thing that we're talking about, and I would be at the very casual end of casually interested, has an idea like that. Like for years I have been saying, well, that's really stupid. Don't wait till the ninth inning to use your closure. You might not need your closer anymore in the ninth inning. You might have lost the game by then. So if I were in your position, I would be acting on this, and then I would want it known that I was right. So did did you guys get to be absolutely unquestionably right about certain things? Yeah, I would say that at times we did. We were certainly wrong about things too. It was kind of a season-long conflict because we were constantly negotiating how we wanted to present ourselves, you know, and and in some ways we probably weren't assertive enough. We didn't want to come in and be tyrants and dictators and act like we knew everything and tell everyone what to do. We hoped to learn from these players because they have a different perspective than we do. And so in some cases, I think we hung back a bit. We didn't say, well, we're definitely doing this. We tried to have a give and take with our manager and our manager didn't always feel the same way we did. So for the first half of the season, the best pitcher on our team, who was a guy we had signed from a spreadsheet, had pitched maybe the fewest innings on the team because he had become the closer. And so he would come in in these save situations late in the game, pitch an inning at a time. And we really felt that we were underusing this great asset that we had. And we tried to make this case, not even purely through statistics, but just, hey, he's our best pitcher. We want him on the mound as often as we can at the most important moments. And we really ran into this psychological barrier, I think. It, you know, we, we toyed with the idea of making him a starter. Really, we wanted to bring back the fireman reliever model from the, say, 70s and 80s, where guys would just come in whenever the highest leverage moment was, when guys were on base, when a good hitter was coming up, mm-hmm. when you might lose the game right then and there. These best pitchers would come in, whether it was the sixth inning or the seventh inning, and then they'd stay in there for a few innings, and, and that would be that. It wasn't... You know, you wouldn't have to wait until the ninth inning until this arbitrary save statistic said bring in this guy. So we were able eventually to make some headway here. And this pitcher, Sean Conroy, eventually started coming in in, say, the fifth inning. And he would come in against our main division rival in the league. And it was a close game. And we'd bring him in in the fifth instead of waiting for the ninth. And he'd come in and and finish the game at times. And, you know, the first time that we tried this, that we were able to convince the manager to try this, We really felt like everything was hanging in the balance on this one time. You know, Sam and I were convinced that this was the right strategy and that in the long run it would work out and we'd be proven right. But if it didn't work out this one time, we might not get to try it again because, you know, the players would lose faith in it. The manager would lose faith in it. Everyone who is against it would say, see, it doesn't work. This is what happens. And so that's one of the reasons why we called the book The Only Rules It Has to Work. There were certain times where it really had to work that one time or else that was it. We would never get to do it again. So, Ben, presumably next year, construction uh, deadlines being what they are, 
the people who listen to this show, they'll, they'll probably have a ch- choice next year. They were supposed to have it this year between seeing a double A team that is part of the Colorado Rockies system or driving a short distance away to New Britain or Bridgeport or someplace like that and seeing an independent league team. So obviously the argument for watching maybe that double A game is maybe you are seeing the next Mike Trout. You know, I mean, this is, you know, maybe you're seeing somebody that the Rockies have found and they're grooming and he's going to be really one of the great players in a few years and you're buying the stock kind of low. You know, you're watching and you didn't pay that much for the ticket and, you know, you have a really good seat and you can see this person. But there's another argument to be made for these independent teams, for getting on the bus to New Britain and going to see the New Britain Bees. Make that case. What does the independent league or the independent leagues have? Yeah, well, I would say that For one, the level of play is essentially indistinguishable depending on where you're going. The Pacific Association we thought was roughly equivalent to A-ball, but if you go to, say, the Atlantic League, you're, you know, you're talking about AAA maybe. You're talking about guys who were just in the majors, might just be in the majors again. So the level of play varies dramatically, but it's not as if these guys are going to be kicking the ball over the field. You're going to see a high level of baseball, and if you didn't know that this was independent ball and someone told you it was affiliated minors— you wouldn't question that. It, it would it would be plausible. So you're going to see good baseball, and I think you're going to see a level of connection to the community that maybe you don't get as much in affiliated ball. You know, with most independent league teams, the players are really part of the town. They live with fans. You know, host families are really the way that independent leagues survive because these teams often don't have the budget to put their players up for the season. So people in the town just, you know, live with these players and and feed them meals and they become part of the town. And there's a very close connection, I think. And, you know, everyone involved in independent ball really loves baseball because mm-hmm. you're not making very much money. Not that you're making very much money in the minors either, but, you know, you you are a long way away from the majors. There isn't a ton of attention on you and you're not making a whole lot of money. You're doing it really, it's a cliche, but it is for the love of the game. And that's true for everyone with the team. That's true for everyone on the field. And you get some really interesting stories. You know, you get guys who maybe were in the majors years ago and, hey, they're still kicking around an independent league ball. Or you do see the occasional sort of Cinderella story where, you know, someone does get the major league call and comes out of the independent leagues. And it's a it's a really you know, inspiring story. So I think there's a lot to be said for independent ball. It gives a lot of players who, for one reason or another, just didn't fit into the the major league, minor league mold, gives them a chance to keep playing baseball at a high level. And it's something that I think we should support. The book is The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It's by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. There's a blurb on the cover, brutally honest, blissfully funny from Nate Silver. That's kind of like Pope Francis blurbing your book, saying if you read only one book about Catholicism this year, (laughs) read this book. I mean, to get Nate Silver's blurb like that. Hey, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Ben, for the time you're taking. Yes, thank you. Two, three, strike, show.